Our scripture reading comes from John 2, the wedding of Cana. The next day, there was a wedding celebration in the village of Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. The wine supply ran out during the festivities, so Jesus' mother told him, they have no more wine. Dear woman, that's not a problem, Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. But his mother told the servants, do whatever he tells you. Standing nearby were six stone water jars used for Jewish ceremonial washing. Each, child, each could hold 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus told the servants, fill the jars with water. When the jars had been filled, he said, now dip some out and take it to the master of ceremonies. So the servants followed his instructions. When the master of ceremonies tasted the water that was now wine, not knowing where it had come from, though of course the servants knew, he called the bridegroom over. A host always serves the best wine first, he said. Then, when everyone has had a lot to drink, he brings out the less expensive wine, but you have kept the best until now. This miraculous sign at Cana in Galilee was the first time Jesus revealed his glory, and his d disciples believed in him. After the wedding, he went to Capernaum for a few days with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples. Thanks, Caitlin. Morning, everyone. It was about a month ago that I was having a discussion one Sunday afternoon with my son, Connor. Um, he's, he's four. And... We were, he's kind of an inquiring mind, um, so especially around like science kind of stuff. And so we were talking about matter. We we're talking about how things turn into different things, you know, physically matter. Uh, and he sa says to me at one point, Dad, is that like how water turns to super fun party juice? <laughs> and I'm like, what? It's like water, it turns to super fun party juice. And I'm baffled, but I know he's got something on his mind, right? So I'm like trying to dig deeper. Connor, what are you talking about? Oh, we learned that Jesus can turn water into super fun party juice. <laughs> so then I put it together, and that day in Sunday school, they had been studying this story, and our, our curriculum, people who write our curriculum for the sake of the kids, instead of calling it wine, they called it super fun party juice. And so I hope you don't think it's insensitive, but we called this sermon super fun party juice because we thought... We thought it would help you remember. Um, <laughs> it is an odd story, though, right? It's an odd story. This is Jesus' first miracle, okay? Uh, you've probably at some point in your life seen uh, some kind of a launch of something, okay? You've seen like a product or a business or a political campaign or a church plant or a new TV show launched. And what, what you'll find, if you really think about it, is that when people launch something— um, they're very, they're very careful about the content of that launch event, right? That first episode of the TV show, that first political speech. They make sure they get it right because this is how they're introducing this thing to the world. This is what you're going to be known for. So here we have Jesus. He's at the beginning of his public ministry, and this is really his launch event. And, it, and verse 2, or sorry, chapter 2, verse 11, which is kind of, excuse me. My voice is going to be rough today. I'm in rough shape. Uh, verse, verse 11 
says this miraculous sign at Cana in Galilee was the first time Jesus revealed his glory. Okay, this is his first miracle. Now, John says there this miraculous sign. I need you to know that the word sign is really important in the gospel of John. So I'm going to explain it to you briefly. If we can just throw that picture of the road sign up. So this is a road sign. It's a sign for merging, right? Now, how does this sign function? This sign has its own reality, but it's pointing to a re reality beyond itself, right? It has its own reality. It's a square of metal attached to a post. It's a real thing. But its reality also is beyond itself. It's pointing to a greater reality, namely the road itself. And you can understand and navigate the road better having seen the sign. That's, that's the, the role that miracles take in the gospel of John, okay? So they're, they're, they have their own reality, but they're pointing to realities beyond themselves. They're helping you understand something about Jesus. You can understand and navigate Jesus better having seen the signs. And the, book, the gospel of John is actually kind of ar arranged as a highlight reel of these signs. He's going to give us seven signs that Jesus did, and each one is going to unpack something about, about who Jesus is. And this is the first one. So here we are. This miraculous sign in Galilee was the first time Jesus revealed his glory. His, the first of the seven signs, the inaugural sign, the, the introduction to the world, the launch event. Here's Jesus, and he introduces himself to the world by unleashing his divine, amazing power to solve a catering problem at a peasant wedding in an unknown village. It's an odd story. Now, to be fair, there were, there were, there were, that's, the stakes were high uh, at this wedding. They were higher than perhaps at a Canadian wedding, okay? Um, at a Canadian wedding, if your catering is insufficient, like, that's embarrassing and you feel bad, right? I was actually at a wedding a few years ago, and the catering, not the beverages, but the food, uh, ran out. You know this thing we do at Canadian weddings where it's dinner time, and the MC says, okay, the head table can go for dinner. Their parents can go for dinner. And for all you other people, I've got a fun game. And you all need to compete in this game to see who gets to go for dinner. Right? You've experienced this? And, and you know, it's always a funny moment because we're all in our nice clothes and the tables are, you know, nicely decorated. They got the candles, the cloth napkins and everything. It's all very civilized. And then the MC starts this game. And this... This uh, beautiful dining hall turns into literally the Hunger Games as people are trying to get to the buffet. And so they're jumping up on their chairs and shouting at the MC. You know, they're trying to pay him off. They're, uh, they're calling the other tables cheaters. Uh, they're fashioning weapons out of the silverware. They don't actually do that. Anyways, my table came in dead last in the game which means we ate last, we got up there, and most of the, the chafing dishes were just empty. And we weren't happy about it. You know, we, I uh, wanted the chicken, I had to have the fish, and we had to like fill up on, on the bread and the pickle platter, right? <laughs> but it's not like we went out there and got indignant and called the hosts on the carpet and said, how dare you? Or we, you know, we didn't even send them a nasty email or anything like that. It's fine. Uh, not so in first century Jewish culture. 
So weddings in, in this time would last for a week. And, as, and the family, it was their, their responsibility to have plenty of food and beverages for the entire village for that whole week. And if you ran out, this was an honor-shame culture, and you would be shamed, you would be disgraced, you would be ostracized. I heard one scholar actually say that the guests were able to take legal action against you. I haven't been able to verify that, but that's, so it, it's serious is the point. And so Jesus comes, and, and he's at this wedding. Mary says, Jesus, they, they have no more wine. And Jesus chooses this event to, to kind of introduce himself to the world. What is he doing? What is John doing by, by recording this? It's a sign. And it's actually going to introduce Jesus in a pretty compelling way. It's going to actually tell Jesus, or tell us, some interesting things about Jesus. And so it's going to tell us three things about Jesus, which we'll, which we'll look at today. There's probably, there's probably more, but we'll look at three. Um, before we get going, just a bit of a sidebar on the... The, the alcohol. Okay, we're going we're gonna to talk about alcohol in the Bible for just a moment because, of course, alcohol is, is prominently featured in this story, uh, and it's positively featured. Everyone's happy that there's wine in the end, and so we need to just briefly understand alcohol in the Bible so we can understand this story. So just four points on this. Um, so here we go. Number one, the Bible does not forbid alcohol consumption. Uh, it just doesn't. It's part of life in the Bible, okay? Number two, uh, the Bible presents alcohol. Stick with me. The Bible presents alcohol as a good gift from God. Number three, like all God's good gifts, alcohol can be used or abused, and we see that in Scripture. You can, in, in Scripture, there are people who, you know, use it in a, in, a, in a healthy way, a way that's honoring to God, and the outcomes are, are good. There are also people who abuse it in an unhealthy way, in a, an ungodly way, and the consequences are bad consequences. And so number four, uh, recognizing that because of this, the Bible commands wise boundaries around alcohol. It doesn't say never drink alcohol, but it does have some clear commands of boundaries around alcohol. Um, a few of them would be, the Bible clearly commands that we avoid addiction, avoid impairment or drunkenness, avoid breaking the law, avoid being unwise, and avoid causing other people to stumble. And so we need to take those seriously. And for, for some people, taking those seriously means you skip alcohol, and that's a valid and a, and a good decision. But what we have in the Bible is boundaries, but, it's, but alcohol is an accepted part of life. And so you need to understand that because, of course, alcohol is, wine is seen as a positive thing within this story. So I, I believe that's a faithful summary, um, and so that's kind of how we're going to approach this story. So it's, it's a good thing when Jesus provides the wine for the wedding. It would not be a good thing if the people abused the wine. Uh, that, that's all I'll say on that for now. Um, yeah. 
So this sign is going to tell us about Jesus, and it's going to give us basically three angles. Uh, we're going to look at Jesus from three angles within this sign, and it's going to kind of uh, start to give us a picture of who this Jesus is. So the first angle that we're going to look at, I've called Jesus the Creator. Jesus the Creator. We've already seen in chapter 1 that the book of John starts with three words, in the beginning, which are the same three words that Genesis starts out with, in the beginning. And John has already been saying that, that the God who created in Genesis is now in flesh in this man named Jesus, and, and that's who Jesus is, okay? He's already been saying that, and he's going to come back to that idea, that idea now. Um, in the fourth century, there was a theologian. His name was Augustine, pretty famous. And Augustine wrote a commentary on John, and he commented on this text, and he said, uh, God has always been turning water into wine by long, slow, natural processes. And, and we're not amazed by that, but here, um, Je Jesus speeds up the process, and it's amazing, which is a nice... Um, which is a nice observation, but with all due respect to Augustine, it's completely false. Water doesn't turn into wine. Last summer, uh, we bought one of those large above ground, large inflatable pools, like the more heavy duty ones uh, that has a filter on the outside, right? And because we're disorganized, uh, we, we didn't chlorinate it enough, enough and we left it for too long and it turned into something, but it was not It was not wine. Because the raw materials for wine are not water. It's not water. It's grapes, right? Now watch this. John's readers, just to preface, John's readers would have been very, um, very familiar with Genesis. And so here's Genesis 1 again. Uh, it says... It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And he goes on to create everything by speaking it into existence. So what we have in Genesis is uh, there's nothing except for, it says, the waters. And God creates everything out of nothing. Okay? The, the term is ex nihilo. It's Latin for out of nothing. Fast forward to Cana. What's the starting point for this miracle? The waters. He starts with water. Zero grapes, zero raw material. And we get wine. He creates wine essentially out of of nothing. He creates wine with no raw materials for wine, okay? Most of Jesus, in fact, I would say probably all of Jesus' other miracles, he starts with raw materials. He gives a blind man sight. Well, the blind man had eyes already. He, he, um, 
he heals a leper's skin. Well, the leper already had skin, already had an immune system. You know, Jesus got, has got some, uh, some raw materials to work with. But here, in this introductory sign, this intro- introductory miracle, like there's no trick that can turn water into wine. The only uh, explanation is he's the sovereign creator, and he can do this because... He can start with just the water and no raw materials and speak wine into existence because uh, in eternity past, because he started with just the water and spoke everything into existence. So here's the big idea. Jesus is the sovereign creator of the universe who can create everything. He doesn't just rearrange what exists. He can create existence. So what kind of a difference does that make as you come to Jesus in prayer? We've been praying all week. To come to Jesus in prayer and say, say, I have a shortage, Jesus. To say, to say metaphor, metaphorically, right, it's your life right now maybe is like, it's like you got three days left in the feast, the bottles are empty. And you don't even have any grapes. You don't even have the raw materials to start to fix this problem. But we, can, but we can come to Jesus, and he says, I don't need no grapes. Maybe, maybe you're struggling uh, in, in a relationship. You've got a broken relationship with a spouse or a family member. There's so much distrust between you, they won't even answer your phone call. Maybe you're struggling with depression or anxiety, and the counseling is long, slow progress, and the meds aren't working, and maybe, maybe the doctor, it's a medical issue, and the doctor is saying we're running out of options. What we see at the wedding in Cana is that Jesus is the creator, and we can come to him with nothing, and he speaks the solution into existence because he's been doing that since the beginning. That's angle one. Angle two uh, is uh, what I've called ritual and relationship. Ritual and relationship is angle two. Um, Let's say you're at a week-long wedding feast. You're right in the middle of it, and you're about to make a bunch of wine. What's the logical container for that wine? The, the empties, right? Like, go to the blue bin, pull the bottles out. They already say wine on them. Fill them back up. You're good to go. They didn't use bottles. They used jars and leather wine skins, but you, you get the idea, right? There would have been wine containers everywhere at this wedding. Jesus doesn't use them. In, instead, uh, chapter, chapter 2, verse 6 says this. Standing nearby were six stone water jars used for Jewish ceremonial washing. Each could hold 20 to 30 gallons. So I think we have a picture. Uh, they would have looked something like this. These, these are this kind of jar. They're ex- these ones were excavated from a site in Israel that could be Cana. We don't know. So something like this, you know, it's kind of this big. Um, now, what's the story on these jars? Why is this important? Why did Jesus choose these jars instead of the empties? In case you don't know, one of the key pieces of, um, of Judaism, one of the key features of Jewish 
religious practice was something called ceremonial uh, cleanliness. You needed to be ceremonial, ceremonially clean. You needed to be uh, kosher. God's people would keep themselves clean and pure and separate and in their minds righteous um, by maintaining kind of these, these rituals and th- these rules that kept them ceremonially clean. Now, this is, this, so Jesus essentially takes the symbol of ceremonial cleanliness and he subverts it, right? He, he turns it on its head. He says, that's what I'm going to use. I'm going to fill that with wine. Now, this is, that, and that's kind of offensive to the Jewish culture. He's, he's clashing with the Jewish culture. Now, listen, um, this is the first of many times in the Gospel of John that Jesus is going to clash with Jewish culture. And I need, un- I need you to understand what's happening here. Uh, Jesus is going to clash with Jewish culture because, um, because it's become empty ritual. See, they, the Jews had all these rituals that started as a way to support their relationship with God, a way to, to structure and help them, uh, help, help them have a fruitful relationship with God. But over time, their hearts wandered from God. Uh, the relationship faded away, and all that was left was the ritual. And so this hand-washing ritual started out with them saying, uh, with them saying, they would come in from the market and they would wash themselves and say, listen, we're sinners, but we want to be clean before God because, because God is beautiful and holy and pure, and so that's how we want to come before God. It was meant to support the relationship. But over time, it just became rote. It became day-to-day. It became an empty ritual. And Jesus is going to come in, and he's not going to uh, critique Judaism per se. Uh, He's going to critique empty, empty ritual. So he takes the symbol of empty ritual, these, these jars, and he fills them with wine. Now, you and I can kind of get the symbolism of that. You know, it's, it's probably supposed to be a symbol of joy and celebration and stuff. What, what you might not know is that throughout the Old Testament, God's, uh, God's prophets used wine as an imagery for blessing, for uh, a vibrant relationship with God, for, for the peace and joy and, that comes um, from being in that close, passionate, intimate relationship with God. So listen, when Jesus takes these jars and fills them with wine, he's saying, I'm here to bring a spirituality that is more like that. It's more like vibrant relationship. It's more like a celebration. It's more like a wedding feast. It's, it's joy-filled. Uh, it's, it's enjoyable. Dare I say, intoxicating. Instead of a spirituality that is just going through the motions. Jesus is going to say in John 10, verse 10, um, I've come that they may have life and have it to the full. And here he's saying, listen, this is not life to the full. There's a a, a deeper, a greater spirituality. And so listen, the the same danger that befell Judaism 
threatens us today because we have rituals and they're designed to support our our ability to be in a vibrant relationship with God right coming to church singing our songs hearing the sermon uh, if you you know reading your Bible praying care group you know what praying before meals like all those little things that we do they're rituals How many of us have gotten to that same point where it's just something we do? It's just the ritual, and the substance behind it is gone. And so Jesus, part of what Jesus is saying here is, I've come to invite you to move from that empty ritual into a vibrant relationship with God. What's your spirituality more like? Is it more like washing your hands before you eat? Or is it like... A wedding celebration with incredible wine and joy and what's it more like that's angle two angle three I've called the wedding and the bridegroom the wedding and the bridegroom uh, there is an odd moment in this text Mary comes to Jesus and says they have no more wine. And Jesus, in verse 4, says, Dear woman, that's not our problem. My time has not yet come. It's not really a, he's not really responding to what, what she said, is he? It doesn't really, it's a, uh, it's a non sequitur. Um, sometimes, you, sometimes you need to ask the question. Like, that doesn't make sense. Maybe we should dig into it. Don't just accept it, okay? So why does he say that? Often, often I've heard people interpret this text and say, well, Jesus kind of brushes his mom off, but then he changes his mind and he does the miracle. Um, I think a better interpretation would be this, and I, and I thank um, Dr. Tim Keller and Dr. Edmund Clowney for this, um, for this interpretation. Uh, Jesus, in his humanity, is thinking about something else. And when he says that, He's not, he's not talking about what she's talking about. He's thinking about something else. Now, what's he thinking about? Well, when you're at a wedding, usually you're thinking about two weddings. You're thinking about this wedding that you're at, and you're thinking about your own wedding. So if you're already married, you're thinking about this wedding, and you're thinking about your own wedding however many years ago, and you're, you're comparing them, right? You're thinking, oh, this wedding's a lot nicer than mine. Wish I hadn't got married before there was Pinterest. <laughs> I didn't know you could do so much decorating with mason jars. <laughs> if you're married, th that's what you're thinking. If you're single, you're thinking, does the future hold a wedding for me and with whom? If you're engaged, if you're engaged at a wedding, that is the worst. Okay, because everyone comes up to you and says, Are you taking notes? <laughs> you're next. It's almost time. Oh, man. So if you're at a wedding, you're usually thinking about this wedding, and you're thinking about your wedding. And, and, and it seems like actually, well, let me hear. Let me show you. Um, throughout the Old Testament, God gives, uh, gives images of his relationship to his people, right, as he, as he speaks to them through the prophets. 
um, and, and he, he uses human relationships as images. So he says, I want to be like your king. I want to be like your shepherd. I want to be like your father. But one of the most frequently used images is God saying to his people, I want to be your husband. I want to be your groom. See, the picture that we get in the Old Testament is that God doesn't just want to uh, lead his people, people or rule his people. He wants to marry his people. Like, he, he wants a, a relationship of the deepest possible intimacy, uh, the deepest possible sacrificial love. He says that in the Old Testament. He says, listen, you're like a bride. I'm like a groom. And, and the way I feel about you is like, is like when a groom sees his bride coming down that aisle. God says that throughout the Old Testament. Now, watch what happens. Uh, in Mark 2, verse 19, some people ask Jesus, why don't your disciples fast like John's disciples do? And it says, and Jesus says, do wedding guests fast while celebrating with the groom? Of course not. They can't fast while the groom is with them. He calls himself the groom. God has been calling himself the groom throughout the Old Testament, and now Jesus says, I'm the groom. And in fact, coming back to John, um, in a few weeks we'll get to John chapter 3, uh, where John the Baptist is asked, hey, John, are you mad that everyone is going to Jesus now and, and they don't care about you? Jesus is becoming famous and people are forgetting about you. And, and he says, it is the bridegroom who marries the bride and the best man is simply glad to stand with him and hear his vows. Therefore, I'm filled with joy at his success. Jesus comes out and, and again, he's the bridegroom. Just to, just to trace this thread to the end, in Revelation 21, verse 2, it says this. This is the second last chapter of the Bible. And it says, And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. The Bible ends with Jesus' wedding. The Bible ends with this moment where he and his people, the church, are finally and completely united in this, in this committed, uh, unfettered, uh, intimate, passionate relationship with each other. They're together finally. So, here's Jesus. He's at a wedding. And probably like all of us, he's thinking at least a little bit about his own wedding. And in his divine, in his divinity, Jesus knows how this story ends. That it ends with his wedding. And he says to Mary, sorry, he says to Mary, dear woman, that's not our problem. My time has not yet come. Uh, in, in Greek, he actually says, my hour has not yet come. That's a really important word. Signs is an important word in John, and hour is an important word. And there's no mystery about what the hour is in the Gospel of John. It's the hour is the time when Jesus dies. And so for the first uh, 11 chapters, again and again you hear, my hour has not yet come, my hour has not yet come, my hour has not yet come, my time has not yet come. And then we get to John chapter 12, and Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And he says that 
on Palm Sunday, which kicks off Holy Week. Six days later, he's on the cross. We're going we're gonna to remember that in a, in a few weeks. Here's the big idea. See, Jesus knows that he's got this wedding coming up, but he also knows there's a cost to that wedding. And so when he says, my time has not yet come, what he's saying is, it's not my time to die. What he's saying is, <laughs> he's saying, I don't have to die to make this wedding happen. But there's a wedding coming, and for that wedding to happen, I'm going to have to go through the hour. I'm going to have to go through my time. And so what we get here, as Jesus sits at this wedding, is just that early, that early foreshadowing of what Jesus would do for us and why, in, in dying on the cross, and why he would do it for us. Because he loves us the way a the, the way a groom loves his bride as she's coming down the aisle to be with him. So Ephesians 5 unpacks this a little bit. It says, for husbands, this, mean, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean. To make that wedding happen, the groom paid with his blood. By the way, What's the other thing that wine symbolizes? Jesus' blood. Uh, and it's in a cleansing jar. It's a new cleansing. You'll, un you'll unpack that a bit in care group this week. But how does Jesus feel about you and me? He so deeply loves us the way that a groom loves his bride, so much so that he not only promised to be faithful unto death, but he was faithful unto death so that we could be together. So to wrap up, um, John, John is going to give us seven signs in this book, okay? Seven is like the number of completeness in the Bible, so he gives us seven. This is the first, and the seventh sign is connected to the first sign. In, here in John chapter 2, verse 1, um, it says, the next day there was a wedding celebration. It actually doesn't say the next day in the original. It says the third day. The first, the first sign happens on the third day. The seventh sign, the final, the ultimate sign, will happen on the third day. The story begins with a sign that, Je uh, that Jesus completes on the third day. The story will end, the story will be, will be wrapped up with another sign that happens on the the third day, Jesus will die. He will, he will shed his blood, which is also symbolized by wine. And then we, we sang today, then on the third at break of dawn, on the third day, he'll rise again. So even early on in this story, John is signaling the end. But we'll get there in a few weeks as we, as we get to Easter. So this sign introduces Jesus to the world. It introduces Jesus to the world as uh, the creator who can make, who can speak, uh, speak things into being. He can, um, he can create something from nothing. It introduces Jesus as, as the one who came to move us out of empty ritual 
and into a vibrant relationship with God. And it introduces him as the savior who loved us like a husband loved his wife, like a groom loved his bride, and who would shed his, bud, his blood in order to make the wedding happen. So I want to invite up the worship team, the prayer team can take their place too. Um, we're going to sing, we're going to sing I Surrender All. And, that's a, and that song is, is a big claim. I surrender all, everything, all of it, every corner of your life. My question to you, if, if you're not a Christian, is the Jesus we see in this story, isn't that someone worth surrendering to? My, my question to you, if you are a Christian, but maybe, maybe your spirituality has become kind of this everyday routine, uh, maybe it's becoming an empty ritual. Isn't the Jesus we see in this text someone who's worth surrendering to so deeply that, it, that you move from this empty ritual into a vibrant relationship. That's the Jesus that's introduced to us here and who we'll continue to see throughout the Gospel of John. Why don't I pray as we finish? Lord Jesus, we praise you for who you are and we praise you for showing us who you are. We praise you uh, because you loved us this deeply. We praise you because you're this powerful, this mighty, this able to provide, this able to care for us, and this, um, this willing to care for us. And Lord, where there are shortages in our lives, we lift them up to you, trusting that you are the creator. And Lord, we ask you to show us the places in our lives where, uh, where it's just ritual places in our lives where, where it's just something we do and where it's not this deep love, this deep um, affection. And we, we ask for you to create something new in our lives. We ask for new wine in our lives and in our hearts. 